0: Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Branch Circuits, Outlet Locations and Limitations. So to recap, for the last couple of episodes, we highlighted the structure of Article 210, branch circuits, our top dozen or so rules, and in the very last episode, we focused primarily on GFCI and AFCI protection. This time around, we want to wrap up the circuit requirements by looking at some location-specific items in the NEC for branch circuits. Now, last time, we had already talked about one little item that's kind of buried between AFCI and GFCI requirements. It's 210.11, and it gives us some of the required branch circuits, and we can use that as a good starting point here. So to recap briefly, 210.11 is entitled Branch Circuits Required, and again, there are three subsections. One dealing with loads that are based on the floor area of the occupancy, then subdividing the loads into balanced circuits and balancing these inside of the panel. And finally, some specific circuit requirements for dwelling units. So 210.11c, dwelling units, highlights four different circuits uh, or sets of circuits. Uh, C1, small appliance branch circuit. These are the ones that are primarily designed for the kitchen countertop. That's what the small appliances are that are referred to here, as well as anything that's associated with the eating areas in terms of receptacle outlets that we might have on the countertop or wall, except for those that require specific branch circuits. Also, it states that these shall have no other outlets, such as lighting receptacles or lighting outlets. Secondly, we have the laundry branch circuit. That too needs to be a 20-amp circuit dedicated to the laundry area. And again, it states this circuit shall have no other outlets, as in you can't put the exhaust fan or the lighting inside of the laundry room on it. And then the bathroom branch circuits. So the main rule states that we can have a 20 ampere, 120 volt circuit to go to the first receptacle in the first bathroom that we encounter, put a GFI there, and then daisy chain the other bathroom receptacles in that bathroom and others on that circuit. The other option is to provide a dedicated home run for each bathroom and run everything in each bathroom on its own individual 20-amp circuit. The fourth item in 210.11c is the garage branch circuits. For the receptacle outlets in the garages, we have to have at least one 20 amp branch circuit, and this one shall service at least one receptacle in each of the garage bays, each of the car bays. With one exception, this also may not have lighting outlets on it, and the exception being that we may take that circuit and supply an external receptacle outlet on that garage. So that's for attached garages. By the way, while these circuits are 20 amp circuits, if we take a look at uh, 210.19, we see that we are given the permission to have 15 ampere rated receptacles on 20 ampere multi outlet circuits. And so while they're a 20-amp circuit, most likely they're going to be a 15-ampere receptacle. So then we want to fast-forward a little to 210.52. That's the new material that we're going to discuss today. And it gives us the layout of various circuits in a dwelling unit. So some of them we we discussed as to the uh, circuits that we're required to have. Um, One that uh, I neglected to mention that uh, should have been in the... uh, A prelude to this is the range circuit. The range circuit shall be a minimum of a 40 ampere circuit if it is electrically powered. That is, if it is not just gas. Uh, If it's gas, then it can just be a 15 or 20 amp receptacle off of the small appliance branch circuit. That reference is 210.19.3. So, how do we space these circuits once we have them? That's where 210.52 comes in. It's the layout of various circuits in a dwelling unit. And at this point, some might say, I thought the code was not really meant as a design guide. And when we look at Article 90, under the scope of the NEC, we find that those words appear there, but it's not the complete statement. What it really says is that the NEC is not designed or intended as a design manual for untrained persons. Secondly, It does not tell us where to place receptacles, lights, and switches. It doesn't give it to us in a prescribed manner. It merely gives a formula or a method to ensure an adequate minimum capacity. One has to remember that quite often with general housing, with apartments, the end customer isn't really known. These are spec houses. So these rules give a baseline as to the minimum requirements that contractors will use in the bidding process. The rules in 2.10.52 give a reasonable assurance that no matter who wires the installation, the overall number of switches, lights, receptacles, and their locations will not differ greatly from contractor to contractor. That's much different than commercial work. In a commercial setting, quite often we know the tenant's needs. We know what their requirements are, and we wire to these specifically. Now, it might be that it's a generic office space or something like that, and so we'll uh, put in uh, something that is reasonable or suitable, but might not be customer-specific. But in a house, we want to be sure that everybody who installs or bids on the job does so from a level playing field. And that's why we have these formulas in our codebook. All right, so if you're with us here in Article 210.52, we're going to take a look at the receptacle outlet requirements. In every kitchen, family room, dining room, living room, parlor, library, den, sunroom, bedroom, recreation room, or similar room, or area of dwelling units. My goodness, that's a long list. But these are the habitable rooms. Things that are not on that list are generally not considered habitable, such as the bathroom, the laundry room, the garage, whether it's attached or detached. So the habitable rooms, in these, the receptacle outlets shall be installed in accordance with A1 through A3. So what is that? Well, first of all, the general rule is such that receptacles are installed so that no point that we may measure along the wall, along the floor line, is more than six foot from a nearest receptacle outlet. And a wall space is any space that's two feet or more in width. So if we have just a short chunk of wall, maybe between two closets, If it is more than two feet in width, we're going to supply a receptacle for it. Along regular wall space, we would come from a partition or a point where the wall is broken, such as a doorway, and measure no more than six feet to place the first outlet, and then we would work our way around. We can have 12 feet between outlets as a maximum. Fixed panels, such as the fixed panels of, uh, say, a A sliding door, it might be glass all the way, uh, that too is considered wall space. The space afforded by fixed room dividers, such as bar type counters, or at times it could be railings alongside of a stairwell, that too is considered wall space. We can also utilize receptacle outlets in the floor for wall space receptacles if they are located within 18 inches of the wall. Now how about wall countertop spaces? Well, a receptacle shall be installed at each wall countertop space, that's 12 inches or wider. Receptacle outlets shall be installed so that no point along the wall line is more than 24 inches, measured horizontally from a receptacle outlet. So that's for the kitchen countertop spaces. How about islands? At least one receptacle outlet shall be installed at each island that measures 24 Inches by 12 inches or greater. Now, the 2017 code put a strange requirement in here in that we would measure this space from the adjoining wall rather than the adjoining cabinetry. That is left in the 2020 code. Uh, that designation was kind of odd. Currently in the 2017 code, peninsular counter spaces. One receptacle shall be installed in each peninsular countertop space with a long dimension of 24 inches or greater and a short dimension of 12 inches or greater. So these two have gotten quite a revision in the 2020 codebook. In fact, countertops and work surfaces uh, that are islands uh, have been combined. So uh, uh, islands and peninsular countertops, that requirement has been combined in the 2020 code. When we take a look at the total area of that peninsula or that island, if it is uh, up to 9 square feet of space, we're going to supply one receptacle. Anything above that, up to an additional 18 square feet of space, we're going to supply an additional receptacle. So the first 9 square feet get a receptacle, the next 18 get a receptacle, and another 18 on top of that would get another receptacle, etc. Also, a peninsular countertop work surface must have a receptacle outlet within 2 feet of the end of the countertop on the work surface. What about separate spaces along countertops? Well, if they're 1 foot or wider, then they receive a receptacle. Now, sometimes we might have some really fancy tile. The customer comes and says, hey, I've got this beautiful Italian hand-painted tile. I don't really want receptacles in my backsplash. Well, we can place them at the bottom of the uppers of the counter, of the uh, a cabinetry, as long as they're not more than 20 inches above the countertop. So for those special circumstances, there's an allowance. Next, we want to take a look at bathrooms. 210.52D tells us that at least one wall receptacle outlet has to be installed in bathrooms within three feet of the outside edge of each basin or sink. The receptacle outlet has to be located on a wall or partition that's adjacent to the basin, and so we could use the cabinetry if we had to. Sometimes we might have a, a backsplash mirror that doesn't give us an opportunity to really put a receptacle in a good spot. What if we have more than one sink? Well, sometimes the same receptacle can cover both sinks. But chances are, if there are two sinks, the homeowner would probably like more than one receptacle. Outdoor outlets. We have to have one, in general, in the front and in the back of the building. And front and back are not defined in the code. So this is 21052 e one And at least one of these receptacles must be accessible at grade level and not more than six and a half feet above grade to be installed and used. If there is a balcony, a deck, or a porch that is accessible from inside the dwelling unit, it too has to have a receptacle. That's 21052 E3. The laundry area shall have at least one receptacle outlet installed for the laundry, 21052F. And elsewhere we also find that We uh, have to be within six feet of the intended location of any appliance. Basements and garages. At least one receptacle outlet, in addition to those for specific equipment, shall be installed in each basement, and each attached garage, and in each detached garage with electric power. Where a portion of the basement is finished into one or more habitable rooms, each separate portion shall have a receptacle outlet installed. This, too, is going to get some revisions as far as the GFCI requirements are concerned in the 2020 code. It used to be that it was only the unfinished space that required GFCI protection, and when it got finished out with flooring, carpeting, etc., then the GFCI protection would go away. That will change in the 2020 edition of the code. 210.52H also addresses hallways. A short hallway requires no receptacle. When does a receptacle requirement kick in? Well, it's when we have a hallway of 10 feet or more in length. Now, that is not to say that a hallway that is 20 feet in length needs two receptacles, or 30 feet in length needs three receptacles. No matter what the length of the hallway, if it exceeds 10 feet, we need one receptacle. Granted, Whoever has to take care of that house, if it's a really long hallway, would probably like to have more than one receptacle available for housekeeping. However, only one is required. We also have language that deals with a foyer. So, foyers that are not part of a hallway. So, you might have an area that has an alcove. Maybe it's underneath a set of stairs going up or something like that. If it's more than 60 square feet, that alcove, then it too requires a wall receptacle, quite likely. And I've seen this in various installations. Quite likely, that's an ideal place for maybe a fridge or freezer. It could be for a side table with a lamp on top of it, whatever. However, the house is laid out. If there's an alcove, somebody's going to find a way to put something there, and more often than not, then they're going to wish that there's a receptacle there. So that's a requirement that we have in our our code book for hallways, and alcoves. How about lighting outlets? We talked in uh, cursory terms about where the receptacles need to go, but lighting outlets. In general, in a dwelling unit, at least one wall-switch-controlled lighting outlet has to be installed in all habitable rooms. Bathrooms, hallways, stairways, attached garages, and detached garages with power. That's 210.70. And there we also find an exception. And in, in modern wiring, this doesn't get used so often anymore. But if you go into an older home, you're going to find a lot of rooms have a switched receptacle or a switched half receptacle instead of a uh, perhaps lighting outlet. That's especially true in sitting rooms, parlors, living rooms, etc. Where can we do that? Well, we can do that in all rooms, actually, except for. The bathroom and the kitchen. All other habitable rooms, we could utilize a switched receptacle instead of a, uh, an actual light fixture that's in the, uh, in the room. One thing to note though, the required outlets that we have for wall spacing only count if at least half of the receptacle is constantly on. So if we switch a whole receptacle, that one can't count for the allotment for the wall space. A3 also talks about storage and equipment spaces, such as attics, underfloor spaces, utility rooms, basements. We have to have at least one lighting outlet containing a switch or controlled by a wall switch in that particular space. And at least one point of control has to be at the usual point of entry to these spaces. How about closet lights? There's no requirement in our code to actually put a light into a closet, and where we do... 410.16 give us some restrictions as to uh, closed closet storage spaces and the type of light that can be installed in proximity to closed storage. Bathtub and shower areas have some restrictions in 410.10 as far as the lighting outlets are concerned. We cannot have cord-connected light fixtures, chain, cable, or cord-suspended luminaires, lighting track pendants, or ceiling-suspended paddle fans. Within a zone that's measured three feet horizontally and eight feet vertically from the top of the bathtub or the shower stall rim. And so, in those areas, we have to have lighting outlets if they're within that zone that are uh, mounted solidly to the ceiling. Also, if they are immediately above the tub or shower location, they must be marked for damp locations. Unless subject to shower spray, then they must be marked for wet locations. One last item to note in 210.70 is when more than one wall switch is required. And this relates to stairs or stairwells. If there are more than six risers, no, let me rephrase that. If there are six or more risers, that's the correct way of saying it. Six or more steps going up or down, we have to have a switch both at the bottom and at the top of the stairwell less than six, I guess we can fall up or down without being able to switch it. I don't think that's a good idea, but that's what the code requirement is. So six or more stairs, and then we have to have switches on both ends of that stairwell. Now one little item that I left out, because it doesn't fit with the lighting, is one of the other required outlets or receptacles, and this applies residentially or commercially. If we have an outdoor heating or air conditioning unit, uh, could be a heat pump, doesn't matter, some kind of heating uh, equipment or cooling equipment, 210.63 require a 125 volt rated 15 or 20 ampere receptacle to be able to service that heat pump or that air conditioner. It must be on the line side if it's coming off of that circuitry, on the line side of any disconnecting means. But more often, we'll utilize one of the general outlets that's already available. Quite often, if it's a house, perhaps on the front or the back, we have a receptacle already there within 25 feet. It does not have to be a dedicated circuit. And that is so that whoever needs to service that piece of equipment can run their evac pump and be able to utilize the tools that they need to be able to do their job. All right, that gives us a little bit of an overview of locations for some of these required circuits. It levels the playing field. It gives us a way to lay out a house, mostly, with the required outlets. It also gives us the basis for if a building has electric power, what does it need. And there's a couple of other things that you'll find in 210.70. If we've got a little outbuilding, as long as it has electric power, we see that it has to have uh, an interior light has to have a mandor light to somehow light up the exterior. That can be on a separate structure, could be on a post, could be illuminated from another area as well. And we have to have a load or a receptacle available there as well. So those are the branch circuit requirements. We're no doubt going to reach back into these as we look at other kinds of installations throughout the code book. And as I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, at the very beginning, there's a list of specific branch circuit requirements that are not covered in Article 210. And every once in a while, we'll address those as well. The next episode, we're going to focus on feeders. It too will be a relatively short episode. Feeders is a fairly small article. However, once we have a feeder we have the ability to do certain things with it that we find in other parts of the codebook. The episode after that, we're going to take a little sidestep. The 2020 code is out. It's published. All of the supply houses are carrying it here now. It's getting hard to find a 2017 codebook. This is being recorded in December of 2019. And even though the state that I'm living in is going to keep working with the 2017 code for another six or so months. It's getting hard to buy one. You have to jump online uh, if you need a 2017 code book. So everybody's starting to talk about the 2020 code book, some of the changes that are happening. So two episodes from now, we will take a a 30,000 foot view, a cursory view. We'll probably do like a top 20, maybe top 25 code changes. Not in great detail, but just to do a highlight or an overview. And then as uh, we kind of get to other parts of the code book in our uh, weekly podcast, we will highlight some of the changes more in depth for the 2020 code cycle. So just a heads up, if you're doing a lot of residential wiring, there are definitely some changes coming your way as far as outside disconnects and things like that are concerned. So listen for those episodes in the near future. If you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes for this episode and all of the other episodes. You can find them on the website on the right-hand side. There is a link for podcasts. When you click on that, you have the podcast page. And again, on the right-hand side, you're going to have a little link that says Lecture Notes. And you'll be able to see the ones for most of the lectures Most of the podcasts that we have, uh, some of them are uh, much more in-depth, others are a one-page overview, but they will help you study for things such as the National Electrical Code Exam in various states, and they will also give you opportunity to get to know the code better. I thank you very much for listening, and until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.